if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Last time we'll be in this text. Could, could definitely spend more time in this text, but uh, I think we need to move on next week. So last time in this text in 18, Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, and the title of this message today is The Helpful Man with a Harmful Error. Beginning in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. So last week, we looked at Proverbs 18.9, which says that the one who is slack in his work is a companion to him who destroys. And this prompted, I know, a number of people to ask, you know, what is my work? What is the thing God's called me to? And am I being slack in it or not? And we have people that watch the sermon from different locations in the country and so forth. And uh, I've heard from some of them that they were asking that very same question. What is my work? I don't want to be a companion to him who destroys. What's my work? And am I being slack in it? Well, one of the things, we're going we're gonna to try to answer that question more practically in the next few months, practically by kind of giving you suggestions about, I think this is probably a part of your work, practically in terms of encouraging you with, with certain uh, sort of broad categories and so forth. But I think it's pretty clear that one of the things that you are called to do, one of your works, is to become more like Jesus, right? Like that seems to be a pretty safe bet. If you're a Christian, one of the things you're called to work at is to become more like Jesus. And that means to put off sin and to put on the righteousness of Christ. But to do that, you're gonna need, to, you're gonna need your fellow Christians uh, to keep a close eye, to help you keep a close eye on your life and doctrine. So one of the things you're called to is to become more like Jesus, to, to put off sin and to put on the righteousness of Christ. But in order to do that, you need help from your fellow Christians to help you keep a close eye on your life and doctrine. And this is gonna require you, honestly, quite a bit, to assume the position that Apollos found himself in in our text. Apollos finds himself in the position in our text, of receiving correction from his brothers and his sisters, right? Paul, because Apollos wants to be more like Christ, and he has to put off sin, put off error, and put on truth and righteousness, he is dependent, like we all are, on receiving correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of your jobs, one of your works, is to receive correction and to receive it in the way that Apollos received it. But another one of your jobs is to help your fellow brothers and sisters see 
their errors, to see their sins that so easily entangle. So we have two jobs presented in this text, essentially, and we have to play a part in both of these. And honestly, if we're not playing a part in receiving correction, we really have no business giving it, right? We'll talk about that more in a minute. So what is my work? What am I supposed to be zealous in? Well, we're supposed to be zealous in in being the Aquilas and Priscillas of the world in giving correction when it is needed, but we're also supposed to be diligent in the work that Apollos was diligent in in the first part of this passage, and that is to receive correction. And so this is what we'll be talking about today. And that's why the title is what it is, A Helpful Man with a Harmful Problem. Apollos is a helpful man with a harmful error. Now, there's a couple problems that are really big and feel insurmountable when we start talking about giving or receiving correction within the church. And one of those problems is, is that we are saints who still sin. One sin that we'll focus on mostly today would be to be slack in the work of encouraging and exhorting and correcting others. So one sin would be to have nothing to do with this process, to be never, neither a giver or a receiver of correction. But another sin, the one that I think we're all very familiar with, is to do it, either to give it or to receive it, in a sinful way. To, eat, to give it in a way that is not in conformity with God's word, or to receive it in a way that is not in conformity with God's word. You know, you can be a harsh speaker. You can also be a harsh listener. And I think many times people who are very aware of others being harsh speakers have actually a trouble being harsh listeners. They're inwardly critical. They're they're quick to judge and so forth. They're defensive. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they they feel inferior in that moment. And so they they hear the whole thing presented in a particular way. So, So doing this is really hard. Um, uh, thankfully, there's a pretty clear recipe. I find that when the hard things come up in, in, in life, we find the clarity in God's word sharpens. God is very specific about the hard things. Uh, he's not so specific about the, the less hard things. In this area of giving and receiving correction, God has a lot to say, and a lot of it is extraordinarily practical, which we'll see today. Okay, but there's another problem. Not just that the, the, the givers of correction and the receivers of correction are both sinners. The other problem is, is this is this is a rough one. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. And he works in those he has captured to discourage the saints under the guise of biblical correction. And this begins, this picks up immediately in the story of Jesus in the Gospels. So there's this category of people who take God's word and weaponize it into something that makes them feel big and makes others feel small. And uh, this is a real thing. We're going to talk more about this too. So one of the challenges is we are sinful in our giving and receiving and correction. But another one is is that Satan actually uses something and, and he is accusing, but he comes under the guise very often of a so-called discerning Christian who sees error in your life. And really what they are is they're, dis- they're parasites living off of the truth of God and they're weaponizing God's word to discourage your brothers and sisters. And they might not even know that as they've been captured by the devil to do his will. So here's the deal. 
not all correction we receive is actually even from God. That's why this all gets so complicated. And there's this, I think, a very um, well-intentioned, but I believe relatively naive approach that some ministers have taken in all of this, and that is to say, well, even if the critic is not from the Lord, you know, what, in the, what, what did the critic say that was true, so forth? Boy, I don't know that that's the proper approach to anything to do with the devil. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think what, what I would commend specifically related to that is if someone comes in a way other than what we describe here with a criticism, what you should do is you should immediately distance yourself from that situation. And you should go to someone who will talk to you in the way we describe here and ask them, such and such was said of, of me, do you see this in my life? Um, the person, whether they realize it or not, who is not admonishing and correcting biblically is not the person to have a conversation with about this. It's, it's uh, unless there's been some repentance and so forth, because we're all going to sin in this area. But I'm just saying generally there's a problem because Satan actually uses criticism uh, to discourage the saints. And so, you know, it's not like we can just trust all criticism, even when it comes with a Bible verse. Uh, it's not that simple. And all of this complication makes Christians more comfortable with their own passivity. But the one who is slack in his work is the companion of him who destroys. The option is not withdraw from this process. The one who is slack in his work is a companion to him who destroys. We have to figure out how to do this right, and we have to figure out how to repent when we did it wrong, and so forth. So how do we deal with all this? Well, this sermon is really meant to, to make this part of the Christian life, to, to reanimate, to turn back on this part of the Christian life, which often lays dormant in a congregation full of people who love each other, but are generally averse to conflict. And, and this, is, this is not just something that exists. This, this aversion to conflict, this aversion to difficult conversations, you're, you're, you're being a companion to him who destroys. So figuring out how to do this right is the only option. Not doing it, not an option. Okay. So this, I'm, hopeful, I'm hopeful that this will help those who receive correction to test the spirits of that correction. And I'm hopeful that those who give correction will understand more clearly what is expected of them when they undertake that process. The first thing we see in our text, it's very important we understand, is this point about a helpful man and a harmful error. It is really clear from the beginning of the discussion about Apollos that this is a helpful man. But he has a particular harmful error. And here, just very quickly, I'd like to give you three potential errors that are common amongst fellow, our fellow Christians that are common in us. And the first one is a lack of facts in the head. And the second one is a kind of forgetfulness in the heart. And the third is a lack of focus in the life. These are the three kind of very common problems we see in all Christians that, that pop up from time to time. And Apollos, his error was in the first category, a lack of facts. He had a lack of 
lack of data, I guess you could say. There were things about the Christian life that he did not know. He was a brother in Christ. He was helpful, but he was operating with an incomplete understanding. It's very interesting. We'll get to this at the very end of the sermon. We don't know what that error was. Very interesting. There's a meaning to that. But there was some information, the text describes, which he did not know. And this is a very common error amongst Christians. Uh, Beyond the gospel, there is no uniform step-by-step way that a Christian accumulates knowledge about God or themselves. For instance, a few years ago, I was speaking to an older Christian man, very sincere in his faith, raised his children who loved the Lord, was diligent in serving others, and our conversation just turned to a discussion on the Trinity. And as we're talking about the Trinity, guess what? He did not he was in profound theological error related to the Trinity. Now, if you are a pragmatist, and many of you are and don't realize it, and this is your aversion to conflict is all rooted not in what God wants you to do, but in what you think will work out the best. If you're a pragmatist, you'll evaluate someone like this, this faithful older man, and you'll say, well, what's the harm? He's being faithful. Everything's fine. Okay, that is a very unbiblical line. And it's not clear where that stops to the point where eventually you have a a Christian leader who is being faithful in his ministry. You wonder where that comes from, right? A Christian who's being faithful in his ministry but is obviously not qualified and everybody looks the other way. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from this very same approach. It's It's a pragmatism that says, well, he's getting the work done, so therefore the errors must not be all that consequential. So Apollos is in this category. He has some lack of understanding. And this is just a part of the Christian life. So years ago, when I was 16, yeah, 16, I was dating a girl who was not a believer. And she was actually an adherent to a faith and, uh, that was very much anti-gospel. And I was working at Golden Corral at the time. And uh, this other girl who was my age, who was a Christian, came and told me, hey, uh, you're not supposed to be dating her. And I'd never heard about such a thing. I'd never heard that this was a thing at all. I, uh, and she kind of like was the first person to expose me to equally yoked and so on and so forth. Now, it turns out that the reason that she was telling me this was because she wanted to date me. But I, I found out that, that out later. But anyway, honestly, like it was, it was information I just did not have. And when I had the information, you know, God moved and I began to act on it. So one of the errors is just a lack of knowledge about something. Lots of Christians pace out their acquisition of Christian knowledge in different ways and in different directions. It's exceedingly common to have a Christian who, who understands the gospel, but maybe doesn't understand what the Bible teaches about finance or giving, or maybe they don't understand what the Bible teaches about marriage and so on and so forth. And this is where Apollos found himself. Now, the second kind of error is a kind of forgetting of the heart. It's not, Christian forgetting is a weird thing because the information's still in there. It's just not operable anymore. Uh, The New Testament is very concerned about forgetting. That's what the Lord's table is about. But Christian forgetting doesn't mean you forgot the, the, the information, but it does mean in some way the information is not actually 
present in the way you're seeing the world and the way you're seeing yourself and the way you're seeing a situation. So one error is sometimes Christians just lack facts. And another error is sometimes Christians are just forgetting the truths that they know. And then the third one is a lack of focus. And here I mean really a lack of zeal. You can have Christians who know what they should know, but they're just not actively going hard for Jesus. They're not running the race to win the prize. And all three of these groups of people are Christians. Like they're, they're following the Lord, but there's some error present in their life. Now, the next point to see is, is that these errors actually really matter a lot. These errors actually really matter a lot. If you generally shrink back from conflict, I guarantee you, you will find yourself trying to say that the error you see in your brother or sister's life is inconsequential and not worth bringing up. So this point is really made to address that particular issue. These errors matter. Apollos is a helpful man, but make no mistake, whatever the error was, it was indeed a harmful error. Uh, In this case with Apollos, it's pretty clear why it was harmful, even though we don't know what it was. Because he was a teacher, right? We can all see it at that level. We can understand that Apollos is sort of in the early stages of his ministry, and he has this error. And we all understand that right now that error is kind of bearing this much fruit, but if his influence continues to gain, and it did, if he continues to grow uh, in the, the persuasion and so on and so forth, this little error will bloom into something that is actually quite consequential. And it's easy for us to see that with Apollos. But it's the exact same thing with you. It's the exact same thing with me. It isn't always as obvious, but the truth is is that we're all representatives of Christ in the world, and the things we say and do are meant to be proof to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. We're all teachers in that respect. And whatever the error is in our life, whether it's the absence of something we need to know or the forgetfulness of something we already know or just a general lack of focus and zeal, whatever the error is, it's actually consequential. It actually will affect things. If you have your Bibles, just turn over to 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. And just listen to this. You wonder, where did I get the facts and the, and the, uh, the forgetfulness and the focus? Well, just listen to this text. For this very reason, make every effort, focus, zeal, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, facts, information, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So I didn't list every possible error, but I listed three, a lack of knowledge, a lack of focus, not making every effort, and forgetfulness, which is at the very bottom of that passage. Now, this word accurately in our text, it appears in verse 26 of Acts 18. It says they explain the word of God to him or the way of God to him more accurately. 
so many of the ups and downs of my life as a pitching dad has involved the, the, the problem of trajectory, the trajectory of an error over distance. And what I mean by that is this. Wes, close your, put fingers in your ears right now. I don't want to get inside your head. All right. <laughs> the, <laughs> this is the problem with pitching. Well, there's, there's a lot of problems with pitching. It's extremely difficult. If your arm is just, if your arm angle, for instance, is just a centimeter off here, by the time it gets to the plate, that centimeter will produce possibly feet of distance and difference. So a little error combined with time and distance creates a massive problem, right? A little error here combined with time and distance creates a massive problem. And this is very true in the Christian life. And this should make you zealous to receive correction over things you consider small. Boy, I've, well, I could preach two hours on how I have failed in every single thing I'm talking about today. But but you can, you can sometimes be defensive in receiving a correction because you think what they're bringing up is small compared to other things you've got going on. But you can also have this difficulty when you're in the correction position, when God actually wants you to correct someone, you can do the same thing. You can say, well, this is just a small thing. It's like, okay, but, but error times distance makes it more than a small thing. Um, sometimes we will see a brother or sister in Christ who we love seemingly blow up and do something really, really stupid or harmful to themselves. Just make a catastrophically bad decision. And I can't tell you the number of times I've heard Christians say, wow, where did that come from? Their brothers and sisters will say, well, where did that come from? And I just kind of sometimes want to say, many times, you know exactly where that came from. You've been stepping over that sin in their life for years. So this little errors are still harmful. They still matter. They still mean something. John Calvin once wrote about a way in which believers become lax in their effort to correct and thereby become companions of him who destroys he imagines a scenario in which every man winking at the faults of others and thus what is evil would be encouraged by forbearance. What does winking mean in, in, John Calvin, in, in John Calvin vernacular? It just means overlooking. It means like it's okay, so forth. This word accurately that, that Aquila and Priscilla engaged in the correction to help them to understand, the, uh, help Apollos understand the, the way of God more accurately. It's all related to the word for sin. Sin is missing the mark. It's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. Apollos is sinning. He is missing the mark. Is he sinning willfully? Absolutely not. Lots of sins we commit are not willful. Lots of sins we commit are sins of ignorance. He is doing so accidentally. But in ignorance, he is missing a mark. And because God has placed him to be a representative in this world, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness and into light, this little thing, repeated, 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 and growing, will become a serious problem. Okay, 
Now let's examine. So this is sort of the case for why I just presented the case for why we should actually be, uh, why we should overlook all the inherent difficulties around correcting and receiving correcting and try it. But I also want to say that there's another encouragement to try it, and that is actually there's an extremely helpful, practical, and biblically straightforward way to do this. And this also will help you discern whether someone who comes to you with criticism is, is really in a place to do so. Okay, So let's look at how Aquila and Priscilla engaged in the art of correction. One thing I want to say, just so I don't forget, because it's not in my notes, this could have gone terribly, and Aquila and Priscilla could have done it all right. right? They could have done this correctly, and it could have still gone terribly. Do not always assume when this situation happens, perhaps you're hearing about it secondarily or so forth, assume that if Apollos had run off and started a cult, that doesn't mean Aquila and Priscilla did it the wrong way. This, this giving and receiving correction is dependent on the grace of God on both sides, right? So I'm going to tell you the right way, but don't think the right way is some kind of silver bullet that will prevent the other from sinning. Again, that's pragmatism. You're, you're associating the outcome with its goodness. And again, this is a major sin that people struggle with. Okay, so, but I do, I want to show you that this, this really is a way to do this the right way. And this will help you do it right, and it'll also help you assess whether you're receiving criticism from someone who's even trying to do it right. Uh, you got to be careful not to fine-tooth comb people's efforts to love you. But there are categories that people should be operating on out of, and if they're not, these are not people that you want to have a discussion with about your sin. The first one is, is they went with authority. And so this would be that I'm just sort of instructing from God's word how you can give correction. And the first one is go with godly authority. Well, what do I mean by godly authority? Well, let's all let's really lock in on verse 26 where it says they explain to him the way of God more thoroughly. This means first and foremost that they had authority that flowed from biblical accuracy. They knew what they were talking about. They, they actually knew what they were talking about. So, so one question when someone's bringing correction is, does this person know the situation? Does this person know the correct approach that uh, I need to take? Uh, this, they, they explained the way of God more thoroughly. It means they knew what they were talking about. Number two, authority flows out of biblical clarity. Again, this idea of they explained the way of God more thoroughly. They were not approaching him with matters of opinion or preference or inference. They were approaching him regarding something that was clearly established, provable via the word of God. They're not like, so this is how a lot of people who love correction do it. Let me explain the way, the way I want you to do it more thoroughly. This is the way they correct. Let me explain the way that you're not doing it the way I would do it more thoroughly. Now, well, that has no authority. Like, what are, what, okay, thank you. So you think I should part my hair the other side? Great, thank you. When you go, go with the authority of knowing what you're talking about, 
And secondly, of knowing that it's not your opinion. A, a good way to talk about this is, is that to the extent that the scriptures are clear about something, you be clear. To the, to the extent that the scriptures are insistent about something, you be insistent. But there's a lot that requires inference and a whole other. Sometimes you can, you, can, you can hear someone's criticism, and it sort of, and I'm guilty of this as well, it looks like one of those, uh, those bulletin boards or those walls in a detective movie where there's like yarn here and here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My wife laughed because I've done this to her. You know, there's the yarn from here to here to here to here to here, and it's like, I mean, I see the connections, but I don't think I would have if you hadn't put yarn everywhere. Listen, go under the authority of God's word. This, hey, this issue, pretty simple, pretty clear. I don't think you're walking in this way. I don't think you know this thing, and so on and so forth. They went with the authority that flows from biblical clarity. And finally, they went with the authority that flows from biblical submission. All right, this is an interesting deal. It was already understood this early on in the life of the church that not all critics, not all teachers were of God. It was already understood, for instance, Paul says, that some preach Christ out of rivalry or vain ambition. People already understood, obviously through the encounters with Jesus and the Pharisees, that the word of God could be weaponized and used in a way that was wholly inappropriate. People already began to understand that biblical language was extremely useful to promote someone's individual ambitions. I mean, you have to ignore a bunch of stuff, but you could do that. So already there was this question extant in the church about who are you and who are you under? Okay, so this is already happening. And what that means is, you know, remember that, that man that comes to Jesus and says, I too am a man of authority and under authority? Authority is always tied in both directions. Not only to you being an authority over someone else, but the, the first question is, well, who are you under authority to? And, and so, so when you're asking, when you go to, to, to correct someone, you really need to ask, who are you and who are you submitting to? How do you respond to correction? Who's your pastor if I disagree with you? Who can I talk to about my concerns about you? See, this is, this is basically kryptonite to the discernment blog industry. You know, what the, you know what the kryptonite is? Who's your pastor? That's the kryptonite. If they don't have an answer, by the way, sometimes they'll lie and say, well, I go to this church. Is he your pastor? Can I go talk to him right now? Does he know you? Cool and Priscilla fulfilled this, this particular issue immaculately. See, if you look at verse 27, this idea of who are you coming from is already well established. The abuse, the, the, the false apostles, all that stuff has already been a part of the early Christian life. So look at verse 27. When he wished, this is Apollos after receiving correction, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. We're already seeing a system of referrals and a network of authority taking place in the early church. They knew, even then, um, if he comes on his own, 
without any sort of connection to other established churches, to other established leaders that we know and so forth, how are they going to know that they should listen to this guy? And so they wrote letters of recommendation for him to give him a leg up. Well, when Aquila and Priscilla go to Apollos, they do so with direct affiliation with the ministry of Paul. Right? In the first chapter, first part of chapter 18, we see how Paul and Aquila and Priscilla met. They became friends. They began co-laborers and working in tent making. But by verse 18, it's clear that they had become co-laborers in the gospel for when Paul uh, travels, Aquila and Priscilla travel with him. And later in Romans 16.3, for instance, Paul refers to them as his fellow workers in Christ. So this first idea of, well, how do I go with correction? Number one, do you know what you're talking about? Number two, is the thing you want to talk about clear in the Bible? And number three, are you a person under submission? Do you respond well to criticism? I suspect that some people struggle to engage in the act of correcting because they know how they would respond if someone corrected them. So the first step, are you a person under authority? Go with godly authority. Uh, Next step, go with biblical affirmation. Go with biblical authority. Go with biblical affirmation. Look at verse 24 again. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Okay, let's be super clear about what's going on in this text. It presents Apollos with a massive amount of affirmation about all that God had already done in his life. It says that he'd already given, God had already given him the gift of eloquence, and God had already helped him to to be competent in the Old Testament scriptures. And God had already seen to it that Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord. And God made him fervent in spirit, and he helped him to teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. God helped him speak boldly in the synagogue, which was extremely difficult and risky thing to do. Just look at Paul's ministry. The list of affirmations in this text is overwhelming. When you go to correct someone, first of all, again, to the person who's averse, (laughs) 30 wonderful things does not make one wrong thing okay. But you certainly should obviously and clearly recognize the 30 wonderful things. Here's, here's what I found. When you go to correct someone, make sure you go with a list of affirmations that are rooted in what God has already done in their lives. This will serve multiple functions, one of which is to fight off the discouragement that the devil can give when we become aware of a sin. So let's say that my wife comes to me, and she uh, comes to me and says, here's all the things God's done for you and done doing in you. And here's something that's not okay. All right. If she had just said, here's the one thing that's not okay. Don't take this from like a business book leader kind of perspective. Let's think godly, let's think scripturally, spiritually about this. If she just came with the one thing, depending on where my heart's at, I could immediately think, I am a hopeless loser. I can't 
look what a mess I am. This thing was in my life, I didn't even see it. Like, man, I'm just, I'm just worthless. That is not going to produce change. It's going to bind me up in what the Bible calls despair. And the devil can use that real easily, right? He can use that real easily. So what she does when she says, here's the bunch of things I see that are God doing. By the way, it's God doing. Not, I'm not telling you you're awesome. I'm telling you that God is with you and he's for you. You tell me 30 ways God has already cared for me, already helped me, maybe already helped me overcome previous sin, and then tell me the thing that's there now. And my temptation to despair as a consequence of hearing that one thing I didn't see that's a problem, it's just totally different because you've told me in advance that God's for me and he's been working and he's helped helping me and he will help me. And then you tell me the thing. So that's one reason why you come with a list of affirmations. But here's another really good reason to come with a list of affirmations. Um, Pay attention to how easy or difficult it is for you to write that list. Because that'll tell you a lot about where your heart's at. When you go to correct someone, sit down. Come up with a list of affirmations. Um, This is one thing I, I did not do for years and years because I thought it was cheesy and something that I, you would read in like a Zig Ziglar book or something. I did not understand the biblical weight given to affirmation. Um, so I would skip over this because it seemed awkward and cheesy. And also it felt like the one thing, one of the things I hate is being patronized. And it felt like the kind of thing that could be patronizing to come to someone and say, hey, here's 20 things I see. Uh, I, I almost felt like it would be, I'm being more respectful to them if I just get to the point and assume that, you know, they don't need all of this puffing up and so forth. I just didn't see this as a biblical mandate. Um, I, I really thought of it as something that, and I think it's probably the way, partly the way that I was taught. I just, it was always expressed to me as something you did for pragmatic purposes or that you did almost, that could be conceived to be manipulative, right? And if you've ever, I mean, We've all worked in these, these workplaces where someone read, uh, you know, a management book, and they're your manager, and they come up to you, and they're like, uh, one, two, three, four, pats on the back, slap. One, two, three, four, pats on the back, slap. And it's like you can, you can feel the bullet points in the conversation. It's not sincere at all. But man, uh, not, only, not only will if affirmations help people from feeling just total despair, but affirmations will also give you a sense of where your heart's really at toward this person. Is it, is it easy for you to write this list? Honestly, I think most of the time you would find that it is. But if you have bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart toward this person, you're going to find this to be really helpful to tell you about that. And when you count your blessings, because gratitude is sort of the foundation of everything, when you count your blessings toward the, for this person, your heart will be affected as well. And you will be more grateful for this person as you do this, uh, this approach. Okay, and so what we see here is tons of affirmation concerning Apollos. The question is, did Apollos, did, did Aquila and Priscilla actually do that? Because the, converse, the conversation is not recorded, and all we see is the correction. Now, let me give you three reasons why I think we can infer that, that that's the case. Number one, three reasons to infer that Apollos, that Aquila and Priscilla affirmed Apollos before they corrected him. Number one, 
where did Luke get all this information about Apollos? All this glowing information. Pretty, pretty likely that Aquila and Priscilla gave this information to Luke. Pretty likely that Aquila and Priscilla were bragging on Apollos in an account to Luke. Secondly, these people were partners with Paul, and Paul has a very particular way of doing pastoral ministry, of walking with his brothers and sisters, and that pattern is affirmation before correction every, basically every time. Affirmation before correction pretty much every single time. And by the way, he did this with unbelievers too. When he went to address the, the people on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he started with affirmation. His heart was stirred against their sin. But even when he spoke to them, he started with affirmation. Does anybody remember what, what that affirmation was? It, it would have felt very affirming to them. He said, I see, brothers, that you are very religious. So Paul has this consistent pattern of affirmation before correction. And we would be probably safe in inferring that Aquila and Priscilla, as partners with Paul, had adopted this manner of ministry. But the most obvious kind of explanation for like how we could be confident that they probably did this is just what the text says. And it says, they explained to him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more thoroughly. And what, what, what's going on there is essentially you're almost something like this to Aquila and Priscilla probably said something like this to Apollos. You're almost there. Like you've got, you've got almost all of it, right? There's just, you've got a bunch of it right. Let me just give you this one additional thing that you're lacking, which that's, that is affirmation. You're almost there. You've almost got, I, I see so much progress and evidence of goodness. Here's this one thing I'm, I'm seeing that I'm concerned about. Let me give you a practical example of where affirmation would fit in with correction. Many of our sins involve an inordinate love for something good. For example, an obsession with getting married or with losing weight or providing for our families and so forth. Um, obsession over security, comfort, whatever. Many of our sins involve an inordinate love of those things. And many of the things we'll have to correct in one another involves sort of just a misguided forgetfulness that God's way better than all this stuff. And he's only the one to be worshipped. Well, how do you affirm someone in a case that's idolizing marriage or idolizing health? I mean, the very first place to start is to say, you desire a good thing. Your, your desire for marriage, your desire for health, your desire for financial stability, these are good desires. God gave you those desires, and nothing I say wants to... Uh, wipe that away, wipe that off the map. From there, then you say, I just think the desire for this thing has turned up to a 10 when God only gets a 10, right? So just even in that sense, there's a way to use affirmation. So one of the questions, if I'm receiving correction from someone is just, do they know about this? And I have to give grace because I didn't know about this, but also, are they making an effort? Do, do, do they have this person is supposedly discerning. Are they discerning all the things God is doing in my life? Because he really is doing a lot. Um, or are they just only able to see the, the, the one negative or one of the many negative things? 
Okay, number three. Number third kind of thing you've got to do when you give correction. You give correction with explanation and not merely exclamation. When you correct someone, the proper way of doing it involves a patient explanation of what you're talking about. In the text, it says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more thoroughly. So let's, let's define the difference between an explanation, explanation and an exclamation. The word explanation is defined as a statement or account that makes something clear, a reason or justification given for an action or belief. The word exclamation is a sudden cry or remark, especially expressing surprise, anger, or pain. All right, married people, let's go back to your last fight. Were we in the explaining side of things or the exclaiming side of things? Were, was, was, the, was the effort clarity or was the effort victory? Was the effort persuasion or was the effort dominance? Was ambition at the heart or was a desire to help someone at the heart. So which typifies your correcting explanation or exclamation? And by the way, all of this points to the relatively lack, the relative unhelpfulness of spontaneous arguments. Basically, everything I'm saying right now points to the, the relative harm. It's a high-risk, low-reward prospect to come into a situation without going through these steps and thinking about all of this, it's, it's generally not going to work out for you. It's generally not likely that you're going to give or receive correction well uh, with a higher spontaneity. That having been said, we're seeing our text very clearly that timeliness is important, right? So, so they had to correct this problem early on. They did, but again, they, this wasn't a spontaneous thing. They, they did this well and with intention and thoughtfulness. So we're talking about going with authority, the authority of knowing what you're talking about, the authority of, of the Word of God is about this, the Word of God talks about this, the authority of yourself being a person of submission. We're talking about going with affirmation, and we're talking about going with explanation and not exclamation. Finally, we see in the text that they went to him in person and in private. They went to him in person and in private. He was speaking boldly in the synagogue, and they were speaking softly in private. They took him aside, it says, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And again, this is kind of what I mean by, is this person qualified to issue this correction? Because this whole idea of in-person and in-private is really Christianity 101. And if they're not doing things like this, it's like, man, how can you, how can I be sure you really see anything if you don't see this massive plank in your own eye? Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The first step is meant to be a blessing to the brother who needs restoration. This first step, go in person, go in private. The aim is to be a blessing to the brother who needs correction. If 
but it is also aimed, it's very clear that Jesus also issues this requirement as a test for the brother who is bringing the correction. It tests the motives and the sincerity of the one who is bringing the correction to, re- to require him to go in person and in private. John Calvin understood all of this quite well. I wish we could have just a sit-down talk about all these incredible things I'm learning about John Calvin. He's kind of the guy I'm reading about this year, multiple books about him. But he wrote about this in-person, in-private thing, and just generally the idea of giving and receiving correction. The design of this, the design of Jesus in Matthew 18, as I have said, is to hinder charity from being violated under the pretense of fervent zeal. Uh, What he means by that is is that this command is issued in a way so that those who have uh, fervent, sinful zeal don't claim to be engaged in charity to hinder charity from being violated under the pretense of fervent zeal. As the greater part of men are driven by ambition to publish with excessive eagerness the faults of their brethren. That most men, he says, have an ambition to publish, that is broadcast, either through slander or gossip or some other means. Most men have an ambition to spread, to publish with excessive eagerness the faults of their brothers. And because of this, the quote continues, Christ seasonably meets this fault by enjoining us to cover the faults of brethren. As far as lies in our power, for those who take pleasure in the disgrace and infamy of brethren brethren, are unquestionably carried away by hatred and malice. For those who take pleasure in disgrace and infamy of brethren, who is that? Who is that? That's the devil. That's the accuser. Takes great pleasure in the disgrace and infamy of brethren. And he says, these people are unquestionably carried away by hatred and malice, since if they were under the influence of charity, they would endeavor to prevent the shame of their brethren. Here's the conclusion. We must correct one another we must receive correction from one another. Nobody has the option of avoiding this because it is hard, but it is hard. Calvin also writes, this is so, so true. It is necessary that this be wisely observed, the giving and receiving of correction. For nothing, he says, is more difficult than to exercise forbearance toward men and at the same time, not to neglect the freedom necessary in reproving them. Nothing is so hard, he says, than to make this balance between the need for forbearance and the need to reprove. Almost all lean, this is so true, everybody in this room, think about this, almost all lean to one side or to the other. Some of us lean toward uh, overcorrecting, and some of us lead to undercorrecting. Almost all lean to the one side or to the other, either to deceive themselves mutually by deadly flatteries. So this is the passive, I'm not going to engage in correction. I'm going to be a pragmatist about it. And I'm always going to be asking, how is this going to turn out for me? Right? Those people, he says, are engaged in deadly flatteries. 
says that's the one problem. And the other problem, to pursue with excessive bitterness those whom they ought to cure. But Christ recommends to his disciples a mutual love which is widely distant from flattery. Only he enjoins them to season their admonitions with moderation, lest by excessive severity and harshness they discourage the weak. So on the one hand, in Proverbs 18.9, we have the one who destroys. And this would be the one who overcorrects with, with their own ambitions to sort of use the shame of another to make themselves feel or appear right. And then you have the other one, Proverbs 18.9, is the one who doesn't do it at all. And they're brothers. They're companions. So this is hard, but we don't have a choice about whether we do it or not. we got to figure out how to do it right. Some parents damage their children's future by, um, by correcting them too harshly. Some parents damage their children's future by not correcting them harshly enough. A lot of parents commit one sin at one stage of life and then overcorrect by committing the other sin at another stage of life. For me personally, I have failed so obviously many times to correct with a proper level of affirmation and patience and so forth. And it frankly, here's, here's, here's how that works in my heart. Grief over that, but also I just don't, I just don't want to do it at all anymore. I just, don't, I just don't even want to get into that sandbox anymore. And that's not, you know, you know what's happening when I do that? I'm looking at my resources. I'm looking at what I can do. I'm not acting in hope toward the Lord. I'm not acting in confidence toward the Lord. And I'm not also just understanding that this stuff is actually within my capacity to choose to do. It's not secret sauce here. These are actions I can take. And so for some of you, this could be a situation where you have either tasted it done wrong or done it wrong. A lot of us have done both. And you say, I want nothing to do with this. Sorry. Not an option. If you, are, if you have nothing to do with this, you are most definitely a companion to him who destroys. The one thing we must always do, though, always do when correcting is we must always acknowledge and affirm and celebrate that whatever error is present in my brother's life, that error has been atoned for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it was paid for before I ever noticed it. It was paid for before I was ever born, before they were ever born. The truth is, is that when I look at someone else's sin, I can have just as much worship as I do when I look at my own. There, that's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. In the, in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, you're familiar with the line. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And here's what I would strongly recommend you do, because this is the pattern in the New Testament. When you go to correct someone, 
sing that with the, the pronouns changed. Their sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. Their sin. My brother's sin, not in part, but in whole. Their sin has been nailed to the cross. And legally, they bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, I said I would get to why no one, no one knows what the problem that Apollos had was. <laughs> you can read 12 commentaries or more. I did, and you can't find any agreement about, well, what was this error? Let my frustration of reading 12 commentaries to not get an answer be cause for your celebration because that's exactly how all this should work. The, the, the error is buried in the, in under, under millennium of time. And all you see in this text, really, really, when you, you read it fast enough, you don't even see the error, do you? You just see all of the good stuff. Oh, that's how it should be. But listen, it turned out that way because, in part, it was corrected early before it could spin off into a bunch of other problems that were more consequential and more widespread. The, the, the correction happened up here on the mound and not down there at the plate. It was it, this, this reality of us not knowing what the problem was is due in part because someone was diligent to correct it in a timely way. And, and not only in a timely way, but in a biblical way. But the truth is, one of the biggest reasons we don't know about this, really, we can't say, is because not only was it corrected in a timely way, in a biblical way, it was received <laughs> in a humble way. And Jesus paid for every step, every step of that whole deal. And it is glorious after, you know, after being a little upset that I had spent four hours reading commentaries for this. It is glorious that I don't know why or I don't know what the error was. Now, that is a hopeful mystery. That is a hopeful thing. Well, for communion, you know, we read often from 1 Corinthians 11. 